When Shannon Gilbert disappeared near Ocean Parkway on Long Island, New York, May 1st, 2010, after a 23-minute 911 call, no one could have ever imagined what it would spark. While training a cadaver dog and looking for Shannon, a body is discovered wrapped in burlap-type material. When police looked closer, there were actually four dead bodies, all escorts. And over the next several months, they would uncover more bodies and body parts, all in the same dense brush in less than a two-mile stretch of road. It would take years and a team from FBI, state and local police to crack some of these murders using high-end technology and pizza crusts. This is the story of accused murderer Rex Hewerman and his alleged victims. This is the Long Island serial killer and the pizza crust. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potorf. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And in tribute to today's episode, for our friends from New York, hey, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? (laughs) Silly. Well, wherever you're listening, be it Long Island, New York, the Bronx, Brooklyn, or anywhere around the world. The seven boroughs. Be sure to like, rate, and review. That helps other people to find us. You can also watch us on YouTube. We're having a good time with YouTube. We are. Yep. This story, which honestly will change and play out in the future because the evidence just keeps rolling in. Yeah, it's like nightly there's something else going on. There are new developments constantly. And before we even walked in to record today, I added something new. Yeah. I have put this off and put this off. We are going to edit this and get it out as quickly as possible because it's it's basically a moving story unfolding in front of our eyes. It's a moving target. And I thought a lot about how I wanted to tell this story and I can I can only do it in my own style and my own voice yep. where we keep the victims first and foremost. Because we like your voice. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that, but okay. Okay. Everybody likes Rob's voice. Yeah. I was at a book signing (laughs) and the women were coming up to me. Oh, we love Rob's voice. And I thought, I've got to get sexier when I talk, apparently. I have no idea. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Before we get started today, let me thank some sources. Wikipedia, NBC New York 4, ABC New York Channel 7, CBS News, CNN, 48 Hours, the docuseries The Killing Season, The New York Times, Law and Crime Network, News Nation, Long Island News 12, The New York Post, GilgoNews.com, CrimeLibrary.org, The Sun, New York Magazine, WPIX 11 New York, NBC News, the Daily Mail, the Suffolk County Police Department, and Bonjour Realty. Wow, I just went and made coffee during that whole list. 
<laughs> There's a lot of people talking about it today, yeah, including yeah. us at Hitch to Homicide. All right. Well, you ready? I am. All right. Let's do it. Now, because this is an ongoing investigation for today's podcast, I'm concentrating on the four victims that police and FBI have issued an arrest for. Three for now, but everybody in the media seems to think that the fourth is coming. Right. Those four and the girl whose disappearance and murder helped the police to actually find so many of these people. Okay. Meet Maureen Brainerd Barnes. She was born on June 14th, 1982 in New London, Connecticut. She's the daughter of Marie Ducharme of Groton and the late Robert Cynical. Okay. She was formerly employed at Foxwoods Resort and Casino as a dealer, then a cashier and a telemarketer, where she worked with her very good friend, Sarah. All right. Maureen grew up in Connecticut and became a mom at 17 years old. Her firstborn was Nicolette. Then she went on to have a son, Dylan. Okay. Maureen's a tiny little thing at 4'11", barely 105 pounds. She'd once broken her nose. She had a scar on her face and another on her forehead. She also had a C-section scar from delivering her daughter. Hmm. And Maureen had some tattoos. Her daughter's name in pink and some gray and black lilies and a red rose. Okay. By 2007, when Maureen is 25, times are tight. And even though she had her job as a telemarketer, she was using Craigslist as a way to pick up jobs as an escort. Ooh. She was living in her own apartment at 180 Prospect Street in Norwich, Connecticut, and in a custody battle for her son. So she began working as an escort. Okay. Now, for some reason, according to her friend Sarah, Maureen had been banned from Craigslist. So Sarah helped her post some photos on the site. And she would also use a website called Backpage to advertise her escort services, hmm. sometimes using the name Juliana or Marie. Okay. On Friday, July 6, 2007, Maureen took the Amtrak train from New London, Connecticut to Grand Central in Manhattan, where she stayed at the Super 8 Motel on West 46th Street. Okay. Her routine was to travel to Manhattan for a few days to work as an escort and then return home to Connecticut. And while she's in Manhattan, she was known to stay at this Super 8, sometimes the Red Roof Inn on West 32nd Street, the Carter Hotel on West 43rd, and Manhattan Hotel on 8th Avenue. She was spreading the wealth. She was spreading the wealth. She was she was in the same location a lot. Okay. Midtown. Right. Now, on occasion, Maureen would travel with her friend Sarah, who worked out of a different room at the same location. They both may have used a male friend who they would refer to as their cousin to accompany them for safety reasons. Okay. Maureen traveled with Sarah the weekend of July 7th, but Sarah returned home early and Maureen stayed behind. Okay. And according to her friend, Maureen had some regulars. Her last known communication was at 11.43 p.m. on Monday, July 9th, when she called a friend in Connecticut. She left the terminal to go outside to have a cigarette. And later that night, her cell phone will ping to Gilgo Beach. Hmm. Two weeks to the day Maureen is missing, her friend gets a phone call from a blocked number. Okay. She answers, and the man on the other end tells her, that Maureen is fine, and he identifies her by her pink tattoo with her daughter's name. And he says, she's fine, 
She's in a whorehouse in Queens. Okay. That's a quote. Yeah, okay. All right. Maureen was reported missing by Sarah, her friend, to the Norwich Police Department on July 14th, 2007. And because Maureen was always on her phone and she stopped answering, they're like, her friends are like, there's something wrong because she was really attached to her phone. Well, sure. The NYPD assisted the Norwich Police Department in the missing person investigation, eventually taking it over. But for the most part, because Maureen is a sex worker, her missing persons case is put on the back burner. Yeah, they just, they don't pay attention to those. Nobody? Yeah. No crime. Right, right. Summer 2009, Melissa Bartholomew is 24 years old. Melissa is born on April 14th, 1985 to Lynn Bartholomew and Mark Spila in Buffalo, New York. And she grew up there, graduating from South Park High School in 2003. She then earned her cosmetology licenses and worked at a Supercuts in her hometown before leaving Buffalo in search of a more glamorous job as a stylist. Hmm. She wanted to own her own salon someday, and she moved to New York City. And I read that her parents were a little worried because Melissa was 4'11 and weighed 95 pounds. Wow. When she got to the city, she rented a $700 basement apartment on Underhill Avenue in Tremont, the Bronx. Wow, $700. That's a deal. (laughs) It is a deal in New York, (laughs) even the Bronx. Yeah. She told her parents that she was working in cosmetology, but her landlady knew that Melissa was forced to take a job as an exotic dancer Mm. temporarily. Then Melissa started picking up extra work as an escort, often through Craigslist, Mm. Adult Friend Finder, and other sites. Gotcha. She used aliases when she did this, Chloe and Very Sexy Chloe. Melissa was known as a sweet girl and a great tenant by her landlords, and she never brought boyfriends or clients to the apartment. Hmm. On July 9th, 2009, Melissa sent a late-night text message to her sister, Amanda. Amanda's just 15 years old, and she's the only family member who knows that Melissa is working as an escort. But by this time, the family did know that she was exotic dancing rather than doing haircuts during the day. Gotcha. And this text to her younger sister was the last time the family would ever hear from her. Really? Early the next day, she made a $900 deposit into her bank account, and she seems to have tried to call an ex-boyfriend who didn't answer. She also checked her voicemail from two motels in Massapequa, a budget inn and a Best Western. Mm. There are so many foreshadowing moments. I haven't even done any of them. (laughs) They're all in there, people. I'm so tempted to just lean in and say that's called foreshadowing every little whip stitch with this. <laughs> On the night she's last seen, July 12th, Melissa told a friend she was meeting a man and would be back in the morning. And Melissa's cell phone records show that she traveled from the Bronx to Manhattan. Hmm. Less than 24 hours later, the family already attempted to report her missing. Her mother's fiance, Jeffrey Martina, tried to file a missing persons report, but officers at the New York Police Department precinct, they just kind of brushed it off. And they were like, it's going to take 48 hours before we open a case. Sure. And a few days later, Melissa's mom's fiancé runs into a friend, Timothy Howard, in the Erie County Sheriff's Department at an Italian street festival in Buffalo, New York. Okay. 
and he convinces him to talk to his undersheriff, Richard Donovan, who then contacted a detective friend at NYPD, and then the case was seriously taken. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's not what you know, it's <laughs> who you know. Exactly. Even when you have a missing person, right? Yeah. Yep. The NYPD opened a missing person file on her, and the work began. They were soon in touch with their Long Island counterparts. NYPD monitored Melissa's cell phone, collected evidence at her Bronx apartment, and they questioned people at the strip clubs where she worked. Okay. Then Amanda, Melissa's 15-year-old sister, started getting disturbing phone calls. <sighs> On July 16th, 19th, and 26th, an unknown man called her using her missing sister's phone oh, and taunted her. <sighs> On August 26, 2009, quote, do you think you'll ever see her again? You won't. I killed her, end quote. Wow. Then he hung up. Jeez. In another phone call just days after Melissa disappeared, the unidentified male caller referred to Melissa as a, quote, whore, end quote, in a short conversation with her then 15-year-old sister. Jeez. In one call, the man described in graphic detail to this little 15-year-old girl, what he had done sexually to her sister, Melissa. Oh, man. The NYPD traced the calls to around Madison Square Garden, then to Times Square. And investigators would later suggest that the caller's choice to call from these very densely populated areas and keep the conversation very short really showed that he knew yeah. it would be difficult for authorities to spot him in a crowded area, even with surveillance cameras. Sure. But that police also typically needed a three-minute call to pinpoint a cell phone's location. Right. They need to triangulate. Yeah. Yeah. People speculated that the caller, the killer, may even have a background in law enforcement. Hmm. NYPD detectives rushed to the scene of the call each time in an effort to identify and confront this guy. But they were never able to locate him. Okay. Investigators were able to locate a second phone that belonged to Melissa. This cell phone was found in possession of a convicted felon who told the police that he had snatched it during a scuffle between two sex workers and a pimp. Hmm. But the second phone was a dead end. And showing a photo of Melissa at Manhattan and Long Island motels didn't help either. There were no leads. A psychic the family hired would prove to have... The best clue. Really? She claimed that Melissa was in a shallow grave near the ocean in a place beginning with the letter G. Wow. That's called foreshadowing. <laughs> okay. That's a big foreshadowing. That's a big one. That's a big one. <laughs> but again, police s sort of put it all on the back burner because... She's an escort. Sure. She's a sex worker. Right. And even though the sister was getting phone calls saying, I killed her, there's no body hmm. and there's no crime. Sure. Next, Shannon Maria Gilbert. Shannon is born on October 24th, 1986 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Her mother was Mari Cox Gilbert. Shannon was the oldest of four girls. At 16, she graduates high school. She skipped a year. Wow. She wanted to be a singer and an actress, and by the time she turned 20, she had become an escort to earn money while trying to make it as a singer. Hmm. Shannon had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, 
but stopped taking her medication, complaining that it gave her the shakes. Now, after she graduated, she worked at a hotel, an Applebee's, and a senior center. But by 2007, she had moved to New Jersey with a boyfriend and signed on with an agency as an escort. Okay. She had at least one arrest in her record, having been rounded up with some other girls from Upper Saddle River, and was one time beaten to the point where she needed a titanium plate in her jaw. Oh, gee whiz. Yeah. Then she started posting ads for herself on Craigslist, where she would charge $200 an hour and keep two-thirds of the fee. The other third went to a driver who would take her to her dates and provide her security. Now, on May 1st, 2010, at about 2 a.m., Shannon arrived in a dark SUV at a two-story wood-framed house on Fairway Drive in Oak Beach, Long Island. It is a quiet, gated community a few miles from Fire Island on the string of barrier islands along South Oyster Bay. Okay. The house belonged to a man named Joseph Brewer. He was a 46-year-old unemployed financial advisor who was separating from his wife. A few hours earlier, Brewer had responded to her ad that she had posted on Craigslist. And the most thorough account of what happens next comes from Michael Pack, who was actually Shannon's driver. Okay. Now, once Pack dropped Shannon off at Brewer's house, he says he waited in the SUV. He was playing poker on his cell phone while Shannon and Brewer were together inside. Hmm. Another source reportedly saw the two leave the house once in Brewer's car for about 15 minutes. It's not clear where they might have been going, although Pack says it wouldn't have been unusual if Shannon was looking for drugs. Gotcha. And at about 5 a.m., Pack says Brewer came out of the house and asked him for help because inside, Shannon is in a panic. She's clutching her cell phone. Police records are going to later show that Shannon called 911 from that phone at 4.51 a.m. and kept the dispatcher on the line for 23 minutes. Really? Yes. Why? I do have a copy of this. I will post it in the show notes. Okay. On the 911 recordings, she sounds frantic. Okay. The voices in the background can be heard. They're trying to calm her down. You know, if the police know who these people are, they don't say. Right. And Shannon never told the 911 dispatcher where she was. So it's possible she didn't even know right. because she was driven there. Sure. So the police had no way of sending help. I mean, I've listened to this 911 call and she even says, can't you see where I am? And they're like... No, we need you to tell us where you are. Yeah. yeah. Pack says he tried to get Shannon to leave with him, but she refused to go. She seemed kind of delirious. He thought maybe it was drugs. So her driver leaves the house. He's frustrated. He gets back into the SUV, and according to him, he waited. Okay. A minute or two later, he says that Shannon bolted from the house, stumbled down the front steps, and took off down the road. Pack says that he followed her in the SUV, but she kept running and screaming for help. A neighbor, 75-year-old Gustav Coletti, was up early. He's shaving mm -hmm. when he hears a pounding at his door. I thought that was funny. Who's up at 545? The 75-year-old man shaving. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When he opens the door, he says Shannon ran inside. She's shrieking and screaming that her life is in danger. And he says that he told Shannon, I'll call the police. But for reasons that are kind of unclear, 
if someone actually threatened to harm her and she called the cops or someone called the cops for her, right. was she afraid that she would get arrested? Uh. So Shannon begged Gustav Coletti not to make the call. Really? Yeah. So she's on the call nine with 911. Then he says, I'm calling the police. And she's like, don't call them. Huh. Gustav says that Shannon ran out of his house and out of sight. And by the time Pack pulled up, Shannon was gone. Hmm. Pack says he spent close to an hour driving around Oak Beach searching for Shannon before giving up and heading back to the city. Okay. As the sun rose and the police finally arrived 45 minutes later after Gustav Coletti had called them, mm -hmm. the only trace of Shannon Gilbert was a set of footprints into the sand heading in the general direction of an empty, overlooked stretch of shore called Gilgo Beach. Okay. And what did the psychic say? Yeah. Some place by the ocean that starts with, with a G. G. Yeah. The Suffolk County police searched Joseph Brewer's house. They seized his car. They questioned him and her driver, Pack, and concluded that neither was a suspect. Brewer and Pack say they've been polygraphed. The police won't comment on that. I've also read that there have been polygraph tests that were inconclusive that no one will talk about. Okay. Brewer would later insist to reporters that he didn't even sleep with Shannon, this escort <laughs> that he called in. Yeah. Wink, wink. Yeah, exactly. And that he just wanted company. Now, maybe he did. I get Playboy just for the article. <laughs> Very good example. Thank you. I don't get Playboys. <laughs> Even to read the articles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Someone's going to email you about that. I know. I don't subscribe to Playboy. <laughs> he tells the police, I didn't see any drugs. Now, is he saying that for himself or for her? But police search the area and they find nothing. And Gustav Coletti was cleared as well. And by the fall of 2010, the leads had dried up. No body. Say it with me. No, no crime. crime. Summer 2010. Megan Waterman is a 22-year-old single mother who lived in Maine. Megan had worked at a series of sandwich shops to make a living. She met her boyfriend, Akeem Cruz, in a bar in early 2009. Okay. They start dating, and allegedly, he told her, there's an easier way to support yourself and your daughter, because she's got a little girl, and him. Hmm. And he reportedly introduced her to using Craigslist to set up appointments with men who were eager to pay for her time and her body. What a boyfriend. Yeah, right? Megan's mother, Ella, has said that Akeem Cruz was her daughter's pimp. Hmm. Ella says that her son's ex-girlfriend told her that Megan was selling herself on Craigslist. So somebody outs her in the family right. that she's selling herself on Craigslist. Right. In October of 2009, Megan was to meet a Craigslist client at the Extended Stay Hotel in Bethpage, Long Island. But the client turned out to be a Nassau County undercover detective. Mm. And after agreeing to perform a sex act for money, he arrested her. She's busted. She had also been arrested two other times for theft and for the sale and use of drug paraphernalia. And when her family finds out she's a sex worker and that she's been arrested, they beg her to leave Akeem mm. and the sex work. Sure. But in June of 2010, Megan made another appointment in Long Island. 
In Long Island, just off the Long Island Expressway, the deserted semi-industrial area around the Hop Hog Holiday Inn Express, it's not the sort of place where most people would want to walk alone at night. Right. But that's exactly what is captured on surveillance footage. It shows Megan Waterman walking. <sighs> she was last seen alive on June 6, 2010. She left the hotel alone around 1.30 a.m. on foot. Okay. Now, when she went on trips, Megan Waterman would call her mother three times a day to see how her little three-year-old girl, Liliana, was doing. Lily. Yeah. 9.50 p.m. on June 5th, 2010 was the last time she would talk to her mother and child. Megan was gone and police found no trail. It's cold. Hmm. No body. No, no crime. Then in September of 2010, Amberlynn Overstreet Costello was a 27-year-old who lived in West Babylon, Long Island. She was a heroin addict who lived on American Avenue with another woman and two men who were also heroin addicts. Okay. Amberlynn was 4 foot 11, 100 pounds. Once again, tiny. Tiny. Yeah. She used sex work to fuel her drug addiction as well as to support herself and her roommates. She would advertise her services on Craigslist and Backpage. Okay. Amber was born on February 10th, 1983 in Gastonia, North Carolina. Oh, Gastonia. That's where I got my motorcycle. That's where Rob's Harley yeah. came the, from. The big Harley dealership down there, which unfortunately <laughs> isn't there anymore. But, when I but, read that, I knew you were going to say this. Yeah. And when living in uh, North Carolina, that's how you say it. You don't say Gastonia. It's Gastonia. But it's Gastonia. Okay. <laughs> Gastonia, North Carolina. That's right. <laughs> well, that's where she was born. She was raised in Wilmington. Okay. Her parents were Alfred Overstreet and Margaret Ann Sassy. She had a sister named Kim. She was married twice to Donald Costello in High Point, Florida, and Michael Wilhelm in Kannapolis, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I think both marriages broke up because of her drug use. Sure. So twice married, twice divorced. She battled drug addiction for a long time. In 2006, Amberlynn moved to Pinellas County, Florida, where she was taking drugs and working as a sex worker in Florida. She was also active in her local church at the same time. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Wow. And her friends from church have said that they always knew that she was an escort, but they remembered her as a kind and loving girl. She sang in the choir. She helped in the nursery, and she was trying to find a way out of drugs and sex work. Sure. So I think she was really, really trying hard. Yeah. She took a job waiting tables at a diner, but she was still struggling, and she was picked up for shoplifting at a Publix supermarket. She had taken toothpaste and other items. When she's arrested, she tells the cops that, I'm a librarian. (laughs) Okay. Her sister, Kim, took her to New York from where she was working as a sex worker in St. Petersburg, Florida, someplace Rob and I love, Mm -hmm. just months prior in 2009 in order to get her into a drug rehab program. Okay. Amberlynn completed a 28-day drug program and lived in a sober house and then moved into an apartment. She used the names Carolina or Mia when she worked. She did in-calls, meaning turning the trick in her home, and out-calls, meaning leaving her home or the hotel. Right. 
And sometimes when Amber Lynn would meet clients at her home, the two male roommates would work a little scam. Hmm. And this is what it was. Okay. After the client paid their money up front and before any sex acts, the two guys, one named Dave Schaller, would confront the client saying that Amber Lynn is my girlfriend. <laughs> and over that Labor Day weekend, this is exactly what happened. Her client came to her home and the two guys caused this scene after he paid his money. And after the guy leaves, he calls Amberlyn and says, I'm coming back. I want a credit. Oh, wow. I've paid for it. Yeah. I want what I paid for. Yep. The next night on September 2nd, 2010, her client showed up back again at her house. And this time she goes with him. Okay. Now, she didn't have a cell phone. She actually shared a cell phone with the two guys and the other girl in the house. And when I read that, I thought, uh, yeah, that's what we all did growing up. It was called a landline, <laughs> exactly. and you had a really long cord, and you walked <laughs> as far away from everybody else as you could for privacy. Yeah, I just remember when we got that very long cord on our phone, I thought we were the Vanderbilts because <laughs> – we, I could walk all the way down the hallway and talk on my phone. I mean, we had three phones in the house, one in the den, which was the one the kids got to use. Mm -hmm. My parents had one in their bedroom. My dad had one in his office. Yeah, you got the den with the long cord if you were a kid. We had one phone. <laughs> it was in the kitchen. Not much privacy. No, there's no privacy. No. Yeah. No. But she leaves with this guy who is driving a Chevy Avalanche truck. Hmm. It's dark green. Okay. And it's noticeable because it is an SUV in the front and a truck in the back. Kind of like a mullet. Really? Yeah. A, mullet, a mullet truck. Business in the front, party <laughs> in the back. That's what I thought about. Wow. And her roommates had tried to scam this guy too, right? Right. So they know what he looks like. Sure. He had actually been in their house. Hmm. When her sister Kim didn't hear from her, she thought Amberlynn's just in rehab. And when Amberlynn's friends called Kim to say, we haven't seen her, her sister started to panic. She was worried. And what she discovered was that prostitution had pulled her sister Amberlynn back into drugs. And when Amberlynn left that night with her client, the last thing she said was, quote, if my sister calls, tell her I love her, end quote. Really? Yes. Wow. Amber drove away that night and never returned. But that night, Dave Schaller remembered the Chevy Avalanche, dark green, and he remembered the client. 6'3", six, 6'6", six, six. he's a big hulking guy. Mm -hmm. Glasses, he looked like, quote, an ogre. <laughs> wow. He's Shrek, although yeah. he gives Shrek a bad name. Yeah. And when they spoke with authorities... Dave Schaller, Amber Lynn's roommate, tells the Suffolk County Police on Long Island about her last client. He looks like Shrek. This is what the guy looks like. This is how tall he is. Wow. But because she's a sex worker, yeah. once again. Gets thrown on the bottom of the pile. It gets thrown on the bottom of the pile. Yeah. There's yeah. no body. Yeah. So there's no crime. Right. Meanwhile, Shannon Gilbert's family is livid with this same Suffolk County Police Department. Shannon made this 23-minute long 911 call saying somebody's trying to kill her. Mm -hmm. And the police had kind of swept it all under the rug. Well, you might ask why. Yeah. 
The gated community of Oak Beach, where Shannon went that night to meet her client, is filled with wealthy and well-to-do people with power. Uh, and the Suffolk County Police Department was a little corrupt, you might say, yeah. as was the DA. Okay. On December 11th, 2010, seven months after Shannon goes missing, Suffolk County Police Officer John Malia and his canine partner, a German shepherd named Blue, are out on a training session searching the area along the side of Ocean Parkway at Gilgo Beach. Oh, okay. The cadaver dog gets a hit, and he takes Detective Malia to a body wrapped in what looked like burlap. Hmm. Camouflage-patterned burlap. Really? The kind that duck hunters or other hunters use for blinds. It's Melissa Bartholomew, who's been missing since July 12th, 2009. Wow. Her body is in the heavy brush alongside Ocean Parkway between Gilgo and Cedar Beach. And no one else has stumbled upon this? No one else has stumbled upon this. Wow. Melissa won't be identified right away, but police are on the scene and they begin searching the brush along the highway where Melissa's body is found. And two days later, on December 13th, 2011, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, missing since July 7th, 2007. Megan Waterman, missing since June of 2010, and Amber Lynn Costello, missing since September 2010, are all found roughly 500 feet apart from each other. Wow. And exactly 50 feet from the edge of Ocean Parkway. Wow. They'd all been strangled. They had tape about their head, their chest, Mm. their arms, their legs. Wow. None of them are Shannon Gilbert, who is what they were looking for. Sure. And they were all wrapped in this burlap type of material, like the stuff that duck hunters use as camouflage. Yeah. The four girls are all similar in size, petite, 4'11", and roughly 100 pounds. The only one who's over five feet is Shannon Gilbert, and they haven't found her. Okay. All four of the girls were $200 an hour escorts. Hmm. And on December 14th, 2010, the Suffolk County Police announced they were looking for a serial killer. The Long Island serial killer. LISK for short. L-I-S-K. Okay. Three months later, a skull, a pair of hands, and a forearm of a girl named Jessica Taylor are found on March 29th, 2011. And here's the thing. Eight years earlier, on July 26th of 2006, a woman was walking her dog in Manorville near the Long Island Expressway. She stumbled upon Jessica Taylor's torso. It's on a pile of branches and a plastic sheet. She's been dumped about a week before. Wow. It will be seven months before it's known that it's Jessica, that that's who she is. Yeah. And they did it by her tattoo. Really? And five more years before the rest of her is found on Ocean Parkway as the same stretch as the Gilgo Beach Four. So that's what they called the four girls that they found in the beginning. The Gilgo Beach Four. You'll hear them referred to that a lot in the news right now. All right. Five days later, on April 4th, 2011, the hands, head, and right foot are found. They call her... Jane Doe number six. Eventually, her real name is known, Valerie Mack. She is found along the same exact stretch of highway on Long Island 
along with an unknown Asian male Mm. and an unknown toddler. All of these bodies are found within a two-mile stretch along the highway and all 50 feet off the road. Wow. Valerie was a 24-year-old escort with a young son who did a lot of work in Philadelphia. She was living with her boyfriend in Port Republic, New Jersey. Her torso was found by hunters in the woods of Manorville, Long Island, just like Jessica Taylor. Right. Valerie's torso was found on November 19th, 2000. Using DNA and collaborating with the FBI, Suffolk County Homicide was able to link Jane Doe number 6, Valerie, to her family in New Jersey. They used public DNA, so like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. They used DNA from that site to cross-reference her DNA and actually found Valerie's aunt. Valerie was last seen 17 miles away from Atlantic City. She was a petite girl, 5 feet tall, 100 pounds. Hmm. Now, there's speculation that the unknown Asian male is a 17-year-old boy named Mo Zhang, who is an exchange student in Yorktown, Virginia, who just up and walked away from a church lock-in. He left his passport behind, and of course, they have no DNA for him. Right. So was he cross-dressing and picked up as an escort when his client discovers he's a man? Right. He's killed because... Unidentified Asian male is actually beaten to death. That is how he dies. All the other intact bodies have been strangled. And as for the toddler girl, well, her mother is Jane Doe number three, also known as Peaches because Mm. of a peach tattoo above her left breast. Her torso was discovered by a hiker. It's inside a black plastic bag and a Rubbermaid container near Park Drive in Hampstead Lake State Park. And at the time, medical examiners noted that the victim had a C-section scar Hmm. and they knew that she had given birth to a child. Her skull has never been found. Really? Her torso was discovered 25 years ago in this green Rubbermaid container. Hmm. Yeah. Jeez. Then in 2011, some of her extremities were found near Zach's Bay in Jones Beach during the Gilgo investigation. Okay. DNA later linked her to the skeletal remains of this toddler that is found seven miles east of Ocean Parkway near the Cedar Beach. Okay. Peaches and her daughter are the only black victims recovered so far in the Long Island serial killer investigation. All right. So eight bodies, 10 if you count everybody. Right. And then in early December of 2011, Shannon Gilbert's purse Her shoes, her cell phone, her jeans are all found in the marsh in Ocean Beach. Really? The gated community. Wow. A quarter of a mile away, and one week later on December 13th, police find Shannon. Mm. Now, police also say that she wasn't murdered, that she was high, she was drunk, she wandered into the marsh, and she drowned or died of hypothermia. Her things are found behind the house of Dr. Peter Hackett. Okay. This guy who lives there. Right. And two days after Shannon went missing, Dr. Hackett makes this phone call to Shannon's mom, Mari Gilbert. Right. And according to her, Dr. Hackett tells her that he's running a home for wayward girls and Shannon wanted to enter the home. Hmm. He also apparently tells Shannon's mother that he treated her in some way that night. And later he's going to take all of that back and say that he only called to offer support to the family. 
That's pretty hinky, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Why would you out of the blue just call to offer support to the family? I mean, I've seen video of him where the press has like pressured him. He gets out of his car. He grabs his chest. His defibrillator is going off and he's yelling at them and getting Uh, in his car and whatever crossing himself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here we are, the end of 2011, with 10, possibly 11 dead bodies all along and in the area of Ocean Parkway. Right. And the current police chief, Richard Dormer, who's been at odds with the DA over these murders, because the police chief is saying it's only one killer. And the DA is out there holding press conferences saying it's more than one killer. Hmm. Well, fine. What's his proof that there's more than one killer? Because there are bodies left intact on the side of the road. Yeah. And the other one is actually what is deemed a torso killer where the body parts are chopped up. But they're all in the same area and they're. Their parts are left in the same area and other parts are in another part of Long Island. But the others that are found in the other part of Long Island, Manorville. Right. Those body extra body parts are also found on Ocean Parkway. Right. And there's DNA connecting and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But this police chief, he retires in January of 2012. He's older, he's had enough, and he's out. Yep. And a guy named James Burke becomes the new chief of police in Suffolk County, and he promptly sends the FBI away, who've been helping with this case. Why? And he forces into early retirement the chief of detectives, Dominic Verone. Okay. He tells Verone that he must retire And he's immediately yanked off the case. And on his way out the door, he is not allowed to give what he knows, the information about the Gilgo Beach murders, to any detective who's taking it over. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Hmm. Now, the new chief of police, Burke, he's got a past. He was caught in the 1990s in his cruiser with a sex worker who stole his service weapon. (laughs) Oops. Uh, Is that a problem? Yeah. Okay. He also was involved in some sort of car accident, a drunken wreck that he apparently fled from. This is all from actual court documents. Wow. So this guy, he's no Boy Scout. Oh, far from it. (laughs) Just wait. Yeah. Just wait. Okay. But then as soon as he is made chief, he apparently opens like a bar in his office. What? Yeah. That was open whenever you wanted. Good grief. He apparently was intimidating to officers that he didn't like, and he set up his staff, other police officers, to conduct surveillance on his girlfriend and her exes. Okay. All right. This is a guy who frequented sex workers and sometimes indulged himself in drugs. (laughs) But one day... A heroin addict named Christopher Loeb breaks into James Burke's unmarked police-issued SUV and steals a duffel bag. Uh-oh. <laughs> Inside the duffel was the chief's gun belt, ammunition, a box of cigars, a humidor, handcuffs, sex toys, a dildo, and DVDs of porn. Wow. Now that's a go bag. I'm just saying. Yeah, that's what you would expect every police officer and every chief of police. Yeah, just the kid. normal stuff Jeez. in the chief of police's duffel bag in his official vehicle. Wow. It's not like it's in his own car. Yeah. Wow. But Burke shows up at the home of Chris Loeb, who's 26 at the time. Okay. At 
half past midnight on December 14th, 2012, he's handcuffed at his mother's house and taken to the station where he's handcuffed and manacled to the floor. Then the fun really started happening because Chief of Police Burke shook Loeb's head violently, punched him in the head and body, attempted to knee him. And knowing that Loeb was a heroin addict, Burke also allegedly threatened to kill him with a, quote, hot shot, end quote, overdose of drugs laced with poison. Wow. And no matter how many times Chris begged for an attorney, they did not get him one. Wow. Now, Chris is unable to fight back, but he still called the chief of police a, quote, pervert, end quote. <laughs> Mentioning one piece of pornography that he mistakenly thought featured a minor on the cover. So the DVDs. Okay. Quote, Burke then went out of control, screaming and cursing at Loeb and assaulting him until the detective finally said, boss, that's enough. That's enough. Jeez. Afterward, Burke allegedly bragged about the beating to other cops, including at a department event where he, quote, regaled a group of officers with his account of the assault, saying it reminded him of his old days as a young police officer, end quote. Grief. This guy. Man. This guy. Yeah. He also allegedly, quote, referred to detectives who were present as his palace guards, end quote. Man. Four years later, Burke is sentenced to 46 months in federal prison. Really? Yes. Wow. He's found guilty of un- numerous things, obstruction of justice. All, <laughs> you know, he's battered this poor, this, yeah. this guy. Yeah, take take your pick. Yeah, there's a long list. This podcast isn't about him, yeah, but yeah. he has slowed this thing down. Wow. He's out. He's been out since 2018. But he severely hindered the investigation of these dead girls. And no one seems to know why. Hmm. Now, on a side note, the DA, who was his good friend, also got prison time because he tried to cover the whole thing up. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. And after this happened, there was graffiti all over Long Island that James Burke was the killer of the Gilgo Beach Girls. Oh, really? And there was a lot of gossip going on. Now, after Mr. Burke's arrest, the new head of the Suffolk County Police, Tim Sinney, redoubled the department's efforts. Mr. Sinney, a former Manhattan federal prosecutor, focused on tracking the disposable cell phones, mm-hmm. hoping there would be more clues. Sure. Then FBI agents in 2012 identified the area where coverage from four cell towers overlapped in Massapequa Park. And by mid-2016, Mr. Sinney had secured a court order for, quote, tower dumps, quote. Hmm. Uh, What's a a tower dump? It's information on every phone that connected to particular towers in a given window of time. Oh, wow. So they're cross-referencing everything. Yeah. Technology and software had advanced, and Mr. Sinney had invested in a system that allowed investigators to, quote, take the relevant areas, end quote, as he told Newsday, and, quote, shrink them to extremely manageable spaces, end quote. Okay. Then in 2021, 10 years after the girls are found, a new police commissioner, Rodney K. Harrison, a 21-year veteran of the NYPD and the first black police commissioner, is sworn in on January 11th in Suffolk County. 
And when he took office, he said his top three priorities were police officer safety, police reform, and solving the Gilgo Beach murders. There you go. And a man of his word, he gets to work. Using phone records and this new sophisticated system that would map the reach of cell towers, a team of investigators, New York FBI, New York State Police, County Police, and Suffolk PD all worked together. Nice. And they had drawn an area across a map of the streets in the Long Island suburb of Massapequa Park. Got it. All based on use of the cell phones, cell phones. by the girls. Right. By 2021, the investigators had been able to shrink that area so that it covered only several hundred homes. Really? Yes. Wow. And in one of those homes was the serial killer that had eluded law enforcement for years. Mm. And what this new team discovers is that each of the victims, the Gilgo Four, Amber Lynn, Melissa, Maureen, and Megan, had all been in contact on their own cell phone with a disposable cell phone, a burner phone. Right. Right before each of them disappeared. Really? Yes. Hmm. And the FBI also had hair samples from the bodies. Okay. Five hairs on the Gilgo Beach Four. Ah. And before when they found it, it was said it wasn't enough to test. Now, I don't know how that's possible. It was only 10 years ago. Yeah. And they had hair, for goodness sake. Right, right, right. But it was stuck in tape around the bodies. But now they had a DNA profile because two of the hairs were found on the bodies were actually from two different people. Hmm. But when they run it through the databases, they get nothing. Hmm. Investigators eventually determined that during the workday, some of the phones had been in a small area of Midtown Manhattan near Penn Station. And at night, they pinged in the area they'd mapped off in Massapequa Park. Okay. And what the killer doesn't know is that this team has also pulled up a tip from the disappearance and death of Amber Lynn Costello. Mm. When she left that night, her roommate Dave gave the description of the guy she left yeah. with. 6366. Yeah. He had a blank stare. He looked like an ogre. And oh, by the way, he was driving this weird truck, SUV in the front, truck in the back. Yep. And using a database that can search for vehicles by make and model without a license plate number. Really? The investigators found an avalanche linked to Mr. Rex Hewerman. Wow. And he owned it in 2010, the year Amber Lynn Costello went missing. Things don't look good for Rex. On March 14th, 2022, Dave confirms with police, we know it's somebody who owns the Chevy Avalanche. And he can he confirms that the guy they're showing him is the same ogre from that night. Right. So they cross-reference it and the registration with the small area they've pinpointed in Massapequa Park. There is one. All right. And while the team is looking at the location of this killer in this small area, this guy named Rex Hewerman is conducting Internet searches such as. Why hasn't the Long Island serial killer been caught? <laughs> Why couldn't law enforcement trace the calls made by the Long Island serial killer? Yeah. What is the Long Island serial killer phone call? Long Island serial killer update. 2022 update. Long Island serial killer. Serial killers by state. 2023. She was. He's also looked up Megan Waterman, Melissa Bartholomew, 
Maureen Brainerd Barnes, and their families. Wow. Yeah, he probably shouldn't be looking up that stuff. So let's talk about him. Yeah. Let's talk about the man of the hour, finally, right? This yeah. is what everybody's been waiting for. Yep. Rex Andrew Heuerman is born in September of 1963 and raised in Long Island, New York, and in the exact same house where he lives now, a little red house in Massapequa Park that's just a few miles from the Amityville Horror House, actually, (laughs) on First Avenue. What is it about this area? I don't know. (laughs) There's something in the water. His parents are Theodore and Dolores, and he has a younger brother, Craig, who has a whole other story. Hmm. His brother kills City Housing Authority Police Captain Winnie and Buskey, who was on his way to bowl with his league on the morning in 1988. And his blood al- his brother's blood alcohol level was twice the legal limit, and he had cocaine in his system. Wow. His little brother, Craig, spent three years in jail for that. Wow. What a family. Little side note. Yeah. Rex's father dies in 1974 when he's around eight or nine years old. And it's been said by those that he grew up with, that Rex is a mama's boy. Okay. And today that mama is 93 years old. Wow. She's still kicking. Yo mama. Now there are loads of famous people who grew up in Massapequa, including Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Massapequa Park is a bedroom town. It's a quiet, small village on the southern portion of the town of Oyster Bay in Nassau County on the south shore of Long Island. They've got about 17,000 people who live there. Okay. And I read that Massapequa is known throughout Long Island for the restaurant, the All-American Burger. Oh, wow. But now it's going to be known for Rex. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Rex. Rex attended Byrne High School, and I read an article that talked about him working backstage during a high school production of Arsenic and Old Lace, where one of the other backstage techs said that he added extra sandbags to the pulley system on the stage curtains that sent another backstage tech nearly flying into the air because she weighed 95 pounds. That's called portion. <laughs> it was like he wanted to be the one who worked the curtains. That's yeah. what she was saying. Okay. And he made it that only him, his 6'3", 200-pound body could do it. Right. And that's just a little bit of a glimpse into his personality. Right. Rex graduated from high school in 1981, and he went on to the New York Institute of Technology in Westbury, where he earned a degree in architectural technology. Oh, wow. Okay. He became a practicing architect in 1987 because if he's sealing plans, he's passed the exam for the state where he's practicing and can sign and seal plans. Right. In 1990, he married Elizabeth Ryan, and in 1994, he bought his childhood home from his mother for $170,000. Okay. And he did this right after his marriage to Elizabeth fell apart. Hmm. So he basically moved home after his first marriage is unsuccessful. Right. Did they have a basement? (laughs) Yes, there's a basement. I was making a joke. I'm not making that joke. He's moving home to live in the basement. No, he's not moving home to live in the basement. Okay. 1994 is also the year he started R.H. Consultants and Associates. Okay. He married his second wife, Asa Ellerup. I believe she's from Iceland. Rex has two children, a daughter, age 26, and a son who the neighbors in Massapequa have said is partially disabled. Okay. I've also read that he might be a stepson, so possibly Asa's son from another marriage. Right. 
But I've never heard anything but good things about Asa and the two children. I don't even want to say their names, although they're out there. But I don't think it's fair to this family, for sure. And I just want to be respectful of that. Absolutely. Again, this is a true crime story unfolding right in front of our eyes. Right. Rex's firm, RH Consultants and Associates, sits on Fifth Avenue in Mm. Midtown. Wow. So he's one of the many who live on Long Island and come into the city every single day to work. Right. Penn Station to Massapequa Park. Okay. It's an hour to an hour and a half long train ride. Wow. And where were some of the phones pinged? Mm, Penn Station. Sure. Yeah. I went to the web page of his company and the meet the team page is a dead link. Go figure. <laughs> yeah, you think? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we don't know him. <laughs> <laughs> but so much time had passed since the killings. The precise location data from Rex's personal cell phone, which is registered to his business, they no longer existed. But his billing records still existed. Um, They're never going to get rid of whether or not you paid them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And these billing records showed the general location of the phone when calls were made. And court papers that had just been put out said that it put it in New York City around the same time in 2010 that the cruel and taunting calls were made to Melissa Bartholomew's cell phone. Wow. Where he is just taunting. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, investigators learned that several of the murders had occurred when Rex's wife and children were out of town. Oh, really? And one coincided with a trip his wife took to Iceland. Another took place when she was in Maryland, and a third when she was in New Jersey. So a little bit like Herb Baumeister, the guy in Indianapolis who would wait till his wife and children were gone to go downtown and pick up gay men and then bring them to his house and murder them. Right. They can't put the burners in Rex's possession because he has bought a bunch of burner phones. Seven, I believe. Really? What for? (laughs) What do you think for? Yeah, I know. Did he have a good reason for that? Uh, Yeah. Okay. But the thing is, they have this DNA from the bodies, and they can't put the burners in his possession. Mm -hmm. But they get subpoenas because they do have the truck. Right. They do have somebody who says, yeah, he was the last one, you know, with Amber Lynn. Right. So they get subpoenas and search warrants, 300 or so of them. Wow. And they start watching Rex all the time. Okay. It's all Rex all day. It's all Rex (laughs) all the time. In July of 2020, an undercover cop rummaged through his recycling bin taking shampoo bottles. Hmm. And what they discover is that more than one of the hairs found on the girls' bodies belongs to Rex's wife. Oh. But police think that's to be expected because if you think about it, Many, many, many of my long blonde hairs are on Rob at any given time. (laughs) Yep. I shed more than the dog. (laughs) It's so true. Yeah, it's true. But one hair they found, they believed was a match to Rex. Okay. So one day in January of 2023, just seven months ago from when we're recording this podcast, Rex walks out of his office on Fifth Avenue and disposes of... A pizza box. There it is. And inside are crusts. And this undercover cop who's watching Rex like a hawk takes that pizza box, tucks it under his arm, and walks away. Wow. 
Okay. So they've been watching him. And with these 300 subpoenas, they can now see his search history on Google, 200 inquiries in 16 months about the Long Island serial killer and or the victims and their families. Wow. And while they're watching him, he's going to massage parlors. He's contacting sex workers. He had Tinder accounts and several email addresses all with fake names, two of which I read were Andrew Roberts and Thomas Hawk. If those are your names, I'm so sorry, guys. (laughs) How unfortunate. (laughs) Yeah. Again, he used at least seven burner phones. Personal cell records and his burner phones matched pinging from the exact same tower. Wow. He took selfies with these burner phones to pick up these girls. (laughs) Man. And while they're watching him, They even found internet searches for child pornography. Wow. In June of 2023, the DNA results are back from the pizza and the hair. It's a match. 99.96% certainty it is Rex. So you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. So on the evening of July 13th, 2023, detectives in suits and ties approach Rex right after he walks out of his office building. Okay. And according to the Suffolk County DA, Ray Tyranny, he was surprised. (laughs) I'm sure he was. He was surprised. Yeah. After all this time. After all this time, getting away with so much. Yeah. His wife and her children had to vacate the home in Massapequa Park with only the clothes on their backs. All their electronics have been confiscated. The truck, the avalanche, was actually in South Carolina, where just two weeks ago, Rex purchased land near his brother Craig. Hmm. He bought a plot of land in Chester, South Carolina, on Rippling Brook Drive two weeks ago for $154,000. And the Chester County Sheriff's Department was just happy as could be to go seize that truck. <laughs> I'm sure they were. They were like, we're on it. New York, South Carolina's on it. Yep. There are search warrants for his brother's property where this truck was found. I've read articles where it's like it's like a big dumping ground. Mm. And if you see his house in Massapequa Park, it's barely standing up, this little red house. Yeah, I saw pictures of it, and I'm thinking, this is a guy with a company on Fifth Avenue? Exactly, and, yeah. exactly. Yeah, crazy. Back in Massapequa Park in Long Island, they search Rex's house inch by inch, where they have found 300 firearms. Wow. And in his over 200 internet searches, He had the Suffolk County Police Department's website on Google Alert to give him news of the investigation. Really? Yep. Police and FBI started bringing things out of Rex's house on Long Island on July 20th. Police have been blocking whatever they're taking from the house from the media. But we have seen a few things. And one of them was a creepy doll in this glass case. Hmm. They also took out his freezer. I read yesterday in the New York Post that cops allegedly found a soundproof room Mm. in the basement. Oh, there's the basement. And they believe at least one victim was killed there. This was revealed just this past Sunday. Mm. And now police are using cadaver dogs and ground penetrating radar to scour Rex's backyard. Wow. 
I saw an interview with the police commissioner right before we walked in to do this podcast. He was asked about the soundproof room Mm -hmm. and he said, I can't confirm that. Mm -hmm. And the interviewer said, well, are you denying it? And he goes, I can't deny it. Yeah. Well then, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I can neither confirm nor deny. Wink, wink. (laughs) A former coworker told the post that Rex, 59 years old, once took time off from his job as an architect to install a concrete-lined vault at his family's Long Island house. And we're talking yards and yards of concrete. Wow. Now, Massapequa has a dense population of police officers. Mm. Lots of police officers. Okay. And like I said, he's three miles away from the Amityville Horror House. Right. But also in Amityville, Rex has a storage unit that police have also raided. And I read in one account that a medical examiner was called to that scene. Really? Wow. This guy's. In addition to his property in South Carolina, he has a timeshare in Las Vegas and a trailer in Massachusetts. Mm. He's been charged with first-degree murder in the deaths of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amberlyn Costello. He's the prime suspect in the death of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. And many think, including me, that that charge is going to happen very soon. I'm sure. Each offense is life in prison without parole. Mm. Now, sex workers, he's been in contact with over the years have come forward to say that when they went out with him, this one girl said she went out to him with for dinner and he only wanted to talk true crime. Really? The Gilgo Beach murders. Wow. So tons of people are starting to come forward. His neighbors are like, he's weird. He's awful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But for now, he's sitting in a six by nine cell. He apparently hasn't really spoken to the staff except to say that he won't be a problem. Mm-hmm. He's on suicide watch, so there's nothing in his cell. Right. He's had no visitors, only his attorney. And the only requests for visits were from press. No family members have asked to see Rex. You think? His family's <laughs> been blindsided, God bless yeah, them. yeah. And days after Rex is arrested, his wife of 20 years, Asa, she filed for divorce. Good for her. It is uncontested. Wow. So here's who I think the police and prosecutors are going to take a good, hard look at. I think the four girls, Melissa Bartholomew, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Amberlyn Costello, and Megan Waterman are going to be slam dunks. Right. But I think Jessica Taylor, Jane Doe number five, Valerie Mack, who was Jane Doe number six, I think the unidentified Asian man who was five foot six. Mm -hmm. I think Peaches and her daughter, the toddler. I think Jane Doe number seven, who was found with Peaches. And finally, the search for the girl that started it all, Shannon Gilbert. Mm. I also think if anyone covered for him, it's going to come out as well. Oh, sure. There's a YouTube of him that I had a chance to watch before it was taken down. He's being interviewed by a Frenchman with Bonjour Realty. I watched it. You can't watch it anymore. You can't blame the company for taking it down. Exactly. But when I watched, just like I watch other YouTubes, I take notes. And some of those were that he comes across as a know-it-all. He says that the New York City Building Department can't understand their own laws, but he does. Mm. He says patience is key with the city and the client. So he's telling them, I'm a patient man. Nobody understands what it takes to do what I do. 
He thinks of himself as a master negotiator. And he says, I use a mix of art and science in the understanding of the New York City codes to make it work. And I apply this to each job. And he tells them that he learned this from furniture building. His father was a cabinet maker. He's asked, let me put it this way. He is asked, do you have one tool? What's the one tool? And he said, well, my dad was a cabinet maker. He was also an aerospace engineer. Right. Don't know if that's true or not. He was in the Air Force in World War II. I did read that. Okay. But it's a cabinet maker's hammer because it is, quote, persuasive enough when I need to be persuasive with something, and it always yields to come out beautifully, Hmm. end quote. Wow. Yeah. It's a heavy framing hammer and a lightweight hammer to nudge things along. Yeah. I also wrote in my notes, Ugh, the heavy breathing, because he is the whole time nice. breathing. He's a big guy. Wow. And I also wrote in my notes, I can't get past the hair. <laughs> Sorry. That's what Chris writes when she's taking notes. <laughs> but here's the thing. There are many, many unsolved murders of women, sex workers, petite girls, and eight more bodies and body parts on Ocean Parkway alone. So how many did Rex kill? Yeah. And now that we have his DNA, what else are we going to find out? Right. This is an ongoing case. We will revisit it. He is has only been charged. He's the alleged killer. I've seen all kinds of people jump on others for saying you're trying this man without, you know, a, a court. Yeah, well. 99.96% is all I can say. Hey, Jim Carrey said it best. He will be judged by a jury of his peers. But for now, we will come back to this. But for now, this is the story of Rex Hurman, the pizza crust, and the Long Island serial killer. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. This is Chris Calvert. I love doing research and writing about real crimes, but I also love writing about fictional people who commit horrible atrocities. When you're ready to take a break from true crime for fictional crime, go to chriscalvert.com where you'll find all my books, including some free ones to get you started. Jane Doe is one badass chick who quietly hunts terrorists in the United States. The Sex and Lies books are all FBI and CIA cases with a little romance on the side. And coming summer 2022, book 10 in the series Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll releases. You can find all of these books everywhere, and if you like to listen instead of read, you can find them all on Audible. So go grab a free book or take a listen. I love all the characters I've written. I've given them pain, ruined their lives, make them suffer, and maybe even throw in a heroic death. Or maybe they live to fight another day. Check it all out at chriscalvert.com, and thanks for being a listener of Hitched to Homicide. Wow, well, you know... Here's an important safety tip. What's that? If you're going to murder somebody, (laughs) eat your pizza crust. Eat your pizza crust. (laughs) We have said this before. Anything you throw in the trash, you can go get it. Surreptitious DNA, that's what it's called. If it's in the trash, you can get it. He threw it in a public trash can. I do want to tell you this one little story that I found. In 2017, he jumped in, in front of this car and he acted like he'd been hit. And he doesn't even fall down. He like bangs on the hood and he ends up suing this woman behind the wheel for $5 million. What? Yes. And he got an insurance payout of 55000 
And apparently he did the exact same thing in 2013, only this time it was a cab driver in Yonkers who ran over his foot. (laughs) So not only is he probably a killer, he's also that that guy. He's He's that guy. Wow. Yeah. That's who Rex is. He's that guy. Wow. What what a a twisted individual this guy is. Yeah. I hope he gets everything that's coming to him. Well, speaking of twisted individuals, (laughs) (laughs) let's do a little, well, bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. All right. I've got kind of long ones today, so I'm cutting it down to three. Okay. So here's the first one, and I'm calling this, what a masshole. (laughs) Okay. A woman was busted in Massachusetts for drunk driving after cops found her driving with a gas pump nozzle attached to her Range Rover, police said Wednesday. Oh. Yeah. Drunk drivers always think they can drive fine, police in Wilmington posted on Facebook Tuesday. In addition to her inability to stay in her own traffic lane, there was something else about her vehicle that caught other motorists' attention. Uh, Authorities in Middlesex County identified the woman as Alicia Esquilin, 24, of Hudson, New Hampshire. The Boston Globe reports. Okay. She was arraigned Monday on charges of operating under the influence of liquor, negligent operation of a motor vehicle, and open container violation, according to the newspaper. I actually know somebody who did this at the pump. Yeah. uh, Drove off and ripped it off. Oh, geez. And the guy from the service station came, the convenience store came running out. What? <laughs> well, th- you'll be happy to know. There the was pol- no, no alcohol involved. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll be happy to know the police told Boston.com that the gas nozzle was later returned to its rightful owner <laughs> and an AL Prime Energy gas station in Woburn, about six miles away. <laughs> Don't go. Oh, all right. This next one. I think this is bad stuff. Okay. A man who thought he was having a bad reaction to methamphetamine oh. asked deputies in Florida to test the drug, saying he wanted to press charges against his dealer, authorities said. Dude, I got some bad <laughs> meth, and I, I want him held accountable. Yep. Douglas Peter Kelly, 49, of Hawthorne, told detectives from the Putnam County Sheriff's Office that he had a violent reaction after smoking methamphetamine he purchased a week earlier. I bet. And wanted investigators to take a look at the product. Yeah. The suspect said he believed because of the violent reaction he had after smoking the drug, he was sold the wrong narcotic. Well, Kelly told detectives in the drug unit he wanted the substance tested because he wanted to press charges on the person who sold him the wrong narcotic. Detectives yeah. obliged Kelly's request, telling him to come down to the sheriff's office. Come then, on down. Yeah, yeah. We'll help you out. Yeah. He then drove to the facility and handed the investigators a clear crystal-like substance wrapped in an aluminum foil that later tested as methamphetamine. Yeah, go and, figure. Yeah, Kelly was charged with possession of the meth and was walked next door to the Putnam County Jail, where he was ordered and held on $5,000 bond, authorities said. Yeah. He was released from a custody late Wednesday jail records show. Yeah. This is kind of like the time that I called police when I was in Indiana driving on the interstate because a guy ran me off the road, probably going, he had to been going like 125 miles an hour. Right. And I say to the operator on the other end, 
he had to have been going 120 miles or more because I'm going 90. (laughs) (laughs) She said, first off, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. slow down. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, thanks. I got to (laughs) go. Thanks for the gumball, Mickey. Oh, yeah, man. blonde moment, oh, right? Well. I didn't drive off. That wasn't me that drove off with the gas thing, but I did call and say, you got to be on the lookout for this guy because he's going to kill somebody. <laughs> you never told me that one. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah, but yeah. Slow down, Chris. Yeah, yeah. All right, but well, last but not least, I'm calling this one, hey, look what I got. <laughs> I love the voices you do with these. <laughs> a robbery suspect who couldn't wait to tally up his ill-gotten proceeds was arrested this week outside a bank in Alaska. Moments after giving a teller a note with his real name and birthday, authority said. Michael Gale Nash was taken into custody by police in Anchorage a few minutes after leaving the First National Bank, Alaska, with $400 in a bag on Tuesday, the Anchorage Daily News reports. Well, he didn't get much money. (laughs) Well, and cops didn't have to look very far to collar their man, according to the FBI. It's my understanding he was sitting outside the bank counting his money when police officers arrived. (laughs) 20, 40, 60. Yep. An FBI spokeswoman in Alaska told the newspaper. Okay. Minutes earlier, Nash entered the bank with a large backpack at about 4 p.m. Tuesday, according to charging documents. He only needed a small backpack. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You only got $400. You're going to put that in your pocket, dude. Need some change. But they filed the documents Wednesday in the U.S. District Court in Anchorage. Okay, this is what he said. This is a holdup, the note read. Please put money they want in the bag. God help us. <laughs> the note was scribbled on the back of a form for affordable housing in the continental U.S. that also had Nash's personal information on it. No, no. weapons were used during the alleged heist. And this is probably the quickest apprehension in history, at least locally for Anchorage, she told the newspaper. God love his heart. God save us all. What was it he said? God help us all. God help us. He was, yeah, he actually. Was, he was being forced to take the money. <laughs> Nash later confessed to the robbery according to a criminal complaint. He has prior convictions for stealing personal property in 1993 and forgery in 2000. He also received a court-martial in 1996 for distributing drugs, according to an affidavit filed by an FBI investigator. (laughs) A spokeswoman for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Alaska said the office could neither confirm nor deny that Nash was under the influence of drugs or alcohol during the heist. But you be the judge. Yeah, I mean, it would behoove him (laughs) that possibly he was. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. God help us all. Yeah, yeah. So there's my bless your hearts for this week. <laughs> Those were good. Yeah. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing, <laughs> like God God help us. God help us. <laughs> if you're out there doing the Lord's work, yeah. <laughs> go to homicide.com. There's a pull-down menu where you can also suggest a case. Yep. Again, this is ongoing. We will follow up on Rex. But for today, that's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. (laughs) Bye, y'all.